Good morning, everybody, and happy Father's Day to all dads everywhere. May your Father's Day be better than your jokes. And thanks for all you do, dads. More than 2,000 years ago, in a remote part of the world, an obscure carpenter turned rabbi walked alongside a lake. And he came along two fishermen, two very ordinary guys, Peter and Andrew were their names. And he said to them, follow me. And they left their nets and they followed him. And then Jesus came along two other fishermen, two brothers, James and John, and he gives to them the same cryptic invitation, follow me. And they left their boats and their business and they followed him. Another day, Jesus came along a tax collector, a despised profession in that day, a guy named Levi, and he gave to him this same two-word invitation, follow me. And Levi stands up and he leaves his booths, he leaves his occupation, he leaves his career and his lifestyle, and he follows this man. This man, Jesus, no matter what you think about him, uh, walked around issuing what we might call the grand invitation, follow me. And we wonder if there's not more that didn't get recorded in these conversations. Was it really just two words? Is there more that wasn't recorded? Is this really the first time they met? But we see Jesus again and again extend this grand invitation, follow me. Sometimes people would say yes. And for them, that might mean many things. Adventure, learning, poverty, frequent failure, hope, meaning, purpose, often death. And sometimes Jesus would extend this invitation, follow me, and people would say no. And maybe that meant security or comfort. We don't really know because those stories aren't recorded in the Bible. Since September, we've been on a journey through the, the, the most impactful talk in history. It's referred to as the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus gave this talk on the side of a mountain, a, a hillside, really. And we have covered the entire Sermon on the Mount over these past nine months, paragraph by paragraph. And all of these teachings, all these messages have been recorded and are available on our website if you want to do an independent study of the greatest, most impactful talk ever given in history, you can do that whenever you like. Next week, we'll give kind of a review of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we're going to incorporate some of your stories and your learnings. And it will be, uh, I think, a fantastic conclusion to not only the Sermon on the Mount, but to our year together as a church. Today, we're going to look at the words right before and after the Sermon on the Mount, the bookends, if you will. Right before the Sermon on the Mount, we read these words, large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So word is spreading about Jesus. His reputation as a miracle worker, as a great teacher is now going out and now the crowds are gathering to be around him. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Now there's some debate about who is the them in this sentence. Was it Jesus' intent to teach his disciples or was it Jesus' intent to teach the crowds? At any rate, everybody listened in that day as Jesus taught about this whole new way of life, this kingdom of God now fully available and accessible by ordinary people. 
And then Jesus gives that great talk, that great sermon. And after the sermon ends, this is the line after the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds, they're still there, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So Matthew wants us to know there were two people in the crowd that day, two kinds of people, and it's not the distinctions we usually think about or that people would have identified in Jesus' day. Uh, he didn't say men and women were in the crowd that day. He didn't say black and white, or the racial division in Jesus' day would have been Jew and Gentile. He didn't say slave and free. Matthew's not really interested in those distinctions. The distinction Matthew is most interested in is the distinction between crowd and disciple. And he plays with these two labels a little bit. Matthew uses that word crowd 49 times in his gospel. The crowds come to hear Jesus teach. The crowds bring their sick friends to Jesus to be healed. They recognize that Jesus is unique, that he is a miracle worker, that he is a great teacher. Uh, they show up to see Jesus when they have a need from him. The crowds may not have been committed, but at least they showed up. There were a lot of people in that day that did not show up to hear Jesus, but the crowds were there. Then Matthew uses this word disciple 65 times in his gospel. A disciple is someone who used to be part of the crowd, but now in their heart, in their mind, in their actions, they have crossed a line and have become committed to Jesus. They are no longer content just being an admirer. They're not content just hearing the words of Jesus. They must now do the words of Jesus and to do them enough that eventually they also begin to live and love like Jesus. Now, Jesus loved the crowds. In another gospel, on that Palm Sunday account, it says Jesus saw the crowds and he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus loves the crowd, but he's looking for disciples. In John chapter 3, a Pharisee named Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and we're told in that text, this from John's gospel, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Nicodemus is an admirer. He says, he calls him Rabbi, he says, we know that you're from God. You wouldn't be able to do the things you've done if you weren't from God. But Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Why did he come at night? Nicodemus does not want to be seen. He doesn't want to risk his reputation as a religious leader of Israel. He is an admirer of Jesus at this point. And Jesus says, look, Nicodemus, this word, he says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must allow my spirit to remake you. You must become my follower. You must publicly identify with me. You're going to have to give up the things you love the most. And Nicodemus does. He does these things. He does become a follower. And at the death of Jesus, we read that Nicodemus publicly claims the body of Jesus down from the cross and assists in placing the body of Jesus in a tomb. He goes from the night into the light and becomes not just an, an admirer, but a follower of Jesus. One day, 
somebody who now is known only as the rich young ruler came to Jesus. And we're told this story is in Mark chapter 10. This young man ran up to him, to Jesus, and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This guy also is an admirer of Jesus. He, he runs to Jesus, falls on his knees before Jesus. He calls him good teacher. And Jesus says to him, here's the one thing you have to do. Sell all your possessions and give everything you have to the poor. Radically change your lifestyle and come and follow me. And the rich young ruler walks away sadly. He showed up prepared to be an admirer, but to be a follower would threaten his finances. And that's a line he will not cross. He walks away sadly. He, he, and, and this question is the question that Jesus is always asking people. Jesus is always calling the question, are you going to follow me or just admire? I think a great word picture of this is Peter, right before the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus is arrested and he's taken to the high priest and Peter kind of follows along all the way to a courtyard. And then the Bible puts it this way in Matthew 26. But Peter followed him at a distance. And I think there's more going on here than just the, the present physical proximity of Jesus and Peter. Have you ever followed Jesus at a distance? You know, you wanted Jesus close, but not too close. You wanted to follow, but not be found out. You want to follow Jesus, but on your own terms. We, we've all done this. We've all followed Jesus at a distance. Kyle Eidelman has written a great book with, a, with an odd title. The title is Not a Fan. Not a Fan. And this is what the jacket cover says on Eidelman's book. It says the dictionary defines a fan as an, an enthusiastic admirer. Fans want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not so close that it requires sacrifice. It says fans may be fine with repeating a prayer, attending church on the weekend, and slapping a Jesus fish on their bumpers. But is that really the extent of the relationship that Jesus wants? Jesus has, uh, was never interested in having admirers. It's not fans Jesus is looking for. Not a fan, the title of the book, Not a Fan, challenges you to consider what it really means to call yourself a Christian. Kyle Eidelman is talking about the important distinction that we're trying to get at today. Am I really a Jesus follower or am I merely a Jesus fan? Have I committed my whole self to Jesus. One of my favorite stories describing commitment is a story of a tightrope walker, famous tightrope walker named Blondine. And in the late 1890s, he strung a rope, a tightrope, all the way across the Niagara Falls. And then before 10,000 screaming fans, he makes his way from the Canadian side of the falls to the American side of the falls. And when he got to the American side of the falls, the crowd is screaming his name. He was famous by that time. Blondine, Blondine, Blondine. And Blondine raises his arms. Can you imagine the rush? Raises his arms, he silences the crowd. And he says, I am Blondine. 
do you believe in me? And the crowd says, we believe, we believe. And Blondine says, I'm gonna go back across the falls this time with a person on my shoulders. Do you believe I can do that? And the crowd yelled, we believe, we believe. And then Blondine sounds to the crowd again. He says, who will be that person? And the crowd was completely silent, not a peep. Kind of, kind of imagine them, you know, do you believe in me? We believe. I'm going across with a man on my shoulders. Can I do it? We believe. Who will be that person? We Finally, after what seemed like an eternity, one guy steps out of the crowd and he climbs onto Blondine's back and the crowd watches for two and a half hours as Blondine makes his way back to the Canadian side of the falls. Now, uh, the, the point is clear, 10,000 people that day said they believe, and they did. But only one man really believed. Right, to believe is not just to give intellectual assent to something, it's to put your life into the hands of the one in whom you say you believe. Belief is commitment. There are a lot of believers in our world today, and a lot of authors have noted the problem in our world and in our church is not that there aren't believers in Jesus. The problem is our world is devoid of serious, committed disciples of Jesus. Jesus finishes this Sermon on the Mount, and everyone is amazed. But Jesus is not interested in amazing the crowd. Jesus never went up to people and said, admire me. Jesus said, follow me. Jesus said, anyone who wants to be my disciple will deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow me. Get, get on. Right? Now, of course, a lot of people didn't feel worthy of Jesus and his sacrifice. People felt like they were sinners. And Jesus comforts them by basically saying, you are sinners. And your sin problem is worse than you thought. You thought when you heard you shall not murder, that if you didn't take the life of somebody that you were okay and clean. But it's worse than that because you've got hatred and anger in your heart and that's every bit as worse. You thought that when you read you shall not commit adultery, that as long as you didn't commit a sex act with somebody who was married, that you were okay. But there is lust and mismanaged desire in your heart that oozes out of you. You've got a sin problem as big as the Niagara Falls, and you can't clean that up, but the good news is that I can. And I will carry you to the other side. I will close the gap, but you have to trust me. You have to give yourself to me. Our goal, like the goal of the early disciples, is to know Jesus so well and follow him so closely that we live and love like he did. Now you will soon discover that that's not possible in your own strength. You and I get up in the morning and we say, today I'm going to live and love like Jesus. And we get home at the end of the day and we say, man, I lived and loved like somebody who wasn't Jesus. Uh, we will fail time and time again. We don't have the ability or even the desire. This will surprise many of you, but when I was in middle school, I was on the school track team. I ran very, very, very short sprints. And, uh, and I was a shot putter. And not bad for an eighth grade shot putter. Uh, 
and I had practiced that routine numerous times to get my put as far as it could go. But you know, eighth grade's kind of different. There's always some kid, some early maturing kid, and there was a kid on this other team, six foot four, full beard, 13 years old, and he got up, no form, no practice. He just got up and said, me, put shot, and he threw that thing way past mine. And my coach looked at me and said, you're gonna do, you're gonna do that. You're gonna achieve that. And I thought, there's no way. I, I don't have the ability to do that. And honestly, I don't have the will. Uh, I don't have the, I can't, I'm not gonna practice anyway. I have no desire to put in there. I, I lack the ability, I lack the will. And when you and I set out to live in love like Jesus, you're gonna soon find that you lack the ability and you probably lack the will. You lack the desire. But the good news is the Bible says this in Philippians, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. God will give you the will, the desire to do it, and he will give you the ability to act to do it. When you turn your life over to Jesus, he doesn't just say, do what I do. He comes in and helps you do what you're not able to do right now. God will use you to make the world into the kind of world that God willed it to be when he created it. So declare today, I am not a fan. I am not an admirer. I'm not just part of the crowd. I am a disciple of Jesus. I will do what he says. I will pay any price. I will commit my whole self to him because Jesus is worth it. Let's pray together, and I want you to think about your decision today. God, we are amazed at Jesus. That much is true. Teach us what it means to accept his grand invitation to follow him. Many of us, myself included, have gotten off track and settled for something less than what Jesus is offering. Give us eyes to see, God. Restore us. And maybe there are some here today who are ready to put a stake in the ground and make a commitment. I will become a disciple of Jesus. I declare myself fully. Jesus has more to offer me than this old world ever could. Give me Jesus. To him be all glory, honor, and praise. Amen and amen.